2: Welcome to Monday Breakfast on 3CR 855am on the dial and it's about 7am. And Thanks for tuning in if you're awake. The sun was shining this weekend which was so nice and even though we can't enjoy it to the fullest, I managed to get outside for a little bit. I hope you did too. And I have noticed that there is a distinct lack of people out since the mandatory masks have come about. I went for a walk to the Merry Creek yesterday, Sunday morning, around 7.30. And I was genuinely the only one at one point. I mean, I I was walking for a good 20 minutes before seeing any other person, which is really very rare for Merry Creek. But it was so quiet and so nice, I managed to just listen to the birds as I was going, which is really lovely. I have no idea what they are, but I did get a little recording, so if you listen closely, you can hear the sounds of the Merry Creek about the same time yesterday. Maybe these bird sounds have inspired some of you to go on a masked walk along the creek this week. And um, if you've got a phone, just record. you can record them yourself and it's just really nice to take a listen again. So some headlines this weekend. Of course, yesterday, you probably have all seen this, um, but we saw... 459 new cases of coronavirus and 10 more deaths. Police said 126 fines were issued to people breaching stage three restrictions within 24 hours over the weekend. I believe they stopped tracking that on Sunday morning. And more than 42,000 tests were completed on Saturday, which is the highest amount the government has completed in a single day. And it's no surprise um, but I came across this article in the Saturday paper, but they have done an investigation piece on the issue of care homes and COVID. A third of COVID-19 deaths in Australia so far have occurred in aged care homes. And their reportings are of an investigation that finds a seriously underfunded and unprepared sector. Hospitals can turn away aged care homes residents and um melbourne hospitals have done that and they they have the right to do that but this particular article did note that that is going to potentially spread the virus in these places a lot quicker it's a it's a really scary moment for a lot of people with loved ones in care homes and those residents themselves Another thing which you may have noticed happening on social media over the weekend was the trending hashtag RaiseTheAge. This is the campaign to raise the age of criminal responsibility in Australia to at least 14. It's currently 10 years old, and around 70% of kids in prison or who are detained are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids. And in the Northern Territory, 100% of children who are detained, are Aboriginal. And Indigenous and non-Indigenous activists over the weekend were sharing pictures of themselves as 10-year-olds to highlight just how young that is. And today, Monday, is the last day you can sign the petition to raise the age from 10 to 14. So please do head to raisethe.org.au to sign that petition and it's really important this campaign gets as many signatures as possible. If you have access to the internet and a device, please check that website out raisetheage.org.au and it closes today. So yeah, get on that as soon as you possibly can. And now from the Northern Territory, the Desert Mulga Band with Pama Yampia you mm-hmm.
3: Listening to Monday Breakfast on 3CR. And now we're going to hear from Dr. Catherine Strong, Program Manager for the Music Industry degree at RMIT University. And she's going to let us know how COVID-19 has impacted the music industry. Dr. Strong's research focuses on issues of gender in the industry as well as how popular music becomes heritage. Her latest book is Towards Gender Equality in the Music Industry. And if you do work in the music industry, do listen until the end of this piece because Dr. Strong is conducting a study at the moment and she wants to hear about your experience with COVID-19 and how that's impacted your working life. Now here's Dr. Catherine Strong outlining for us how COVID-19 has impacted the music industry.
4: Well, we know that the music industry has almost completely shut down. In terms of live. Music. So obviously the the area of the music industry where people can record and release their music and where people can access through, through things like streaming platforms, uh, that hasn't been doing so badly. People have still been able to get their work recorded and get it out there to the audiences. Um, but in places like Melbourne, a, a lot of people rely on playing live gigs or running venues or being a part of a road crew as a way of getting a significant part of their income. And those people have been absolutely smashed. So um, there was a website that was put up very quickly after the lockdown, which was called I Lost My Gig. And they got people to go in and put in how much they thought they had lost from gigs that had been cancelled. And they got a figure of $340 million. And that was just in the first month or phone. So. Of the shutdown. That's Australia-wide, uh, not just in Victoria, but it's still a pretty significant figure. So a lot of people got hit really, really hard, especially in that first wave where there was just that shock of suddenly realising that everything had come to a grinding halt.
3: Um, a lot of my favourite bands have found creative ways of getting their music out, with the, you know streaming live shows from their living rooms and stuff like that. But I'm not sure if that's putting food on the table. What does the economy of the COVID-19 music industry look like?
4: It is one where uh, at the moment it seems like a lot of people are doing work for free that normally they would have been paid for. So people who are in the music industry are generally in it because they are passionate about what they do. So we did a study just recently looking at people who run music industry related businesses And over and over again, the thing that people would say to us is, I'm doing this because I love the music. And I think for musicians, that would be even more strongly emphasized. People do it because they love it. So that means that um, when it comes down to a choice between not being able to get any engagement with music, not being able to play, not being able to perform in any way, or not being able to be paid, people will still perform. So we saw that straight away you had, People putting on uh, streaming gigs like Isolade was one of the first ones to really get up and running and that went for a a few months and every weekend there would be these amazing lineups of Australian musicians who were all performing for free and the people who were putting on these events were were giving their labor for free as well. So it is a way for people to keep engaging with their art and to keep engaging with their audiences uh but it, it does also mean that they're not getting any money coming in. And this is important to remember that this isn't an industry where people are being paid not that well to begin with. So it's it's an ongoing issue that artists in particular are paid very little for providing uh, for, for, for providing the heart of what keeps the entire ecosystem of the music industry going. Uh, it's, it's hard for everyone, venue owners often don't get a lot either, promoters, managers, nobody's, well, very few people are raking it in, uh, but the artists are really at the bottom of the pecking order when it comes to who gets paid a lot of the time.
3: And on that point, uh, Bonnie Dalton from the Victorian Music Development Office has said recovery may prioritise incumbent success while leaving behind those who started behind. Uh, How can we ensure when the music industry gets back on its feet that it's diverse music, it's a harmony of a a lot of types of voices?
4: Yeah, that's a really important question. So we know from studies of other periods of crisis, and and this ranges from things like uh, natural disasters through to uh, economic crises. So say, the 2008 uh, global financial crisis, Um, one of the things that comes out over and over and over again is that the people who were the most well-off before the crisis happens end up being as well-off, if not better-off, once everything has sort of uh, sorted itself out and and things have gone back to normal after the crisis. So... um, uh, And that's particularly the case in things like the creative industry. So some really good studies that people did in the UK in 2008, and, and looking at the fallout from that, showed that what happened in the creative industry there was diversity went backwards. So uh, women, um, uh, people of colour, who had been making some headway in, in finding a foothold in the creative industries, were finding it harder to get work uh, than uh, the sort of white men who had been the, the basis of the establishment of the creative industry. But when I say establishment, I mean they were sort of the... Um, the people who had the most power and the most influence and the most money in most cases. So it's it's a real danger at this point that um, what we have seen in places like Melbourne uh, over the last decade or so is that there has been some gains being made where uh, women, people of colour, First Nations artists, um, has been being given more of a seat at the table. And I'm not here to say that things were looking perfect or that it was getting anywhere near actually being equal. I mean, I think that we still have figures in Australia where the APRA uh, payouts, royalty payouts, are still 80% going to men and only 20% going to women. and We don't even know what the breakdown is in terms of other types of demographics. Um, so things were definitely no any equal, but they were getting better. There were definitely some some gains being made. Um, The danger with this crisis is that that all gets completely washed away, and people stop thinking about that because they're so focused on just surviving. If you're running a venue at the moment, you are just going to be thinking, how do I get my doors back open, and who am I going to book that I think is going to bring in the biggest crowd? And the default setting for those sorts of questions often is, well, the the white rock, and made up completely of men. So one of the biggest things we need to think about is how we rebuild this sector in a way that actually enables everybody to equally participate in it. Um, and that's going to be really hard because when people are struggling to survive, things like that can be the last thing they think
3: about. And what, what kind of support do we need to see from the government uh, to rebuild the, in, the music industry?
4: Uh, at the moment, the government has been very... Oh, OK, well, there's a difference as well between what's been going on at the federal level and what's been happening at state level. Uh, and a number of people have noted that the states have moved much more quickly and been a lot more generous in terms of what they have given in support to the arts sector. Um, in Victoria, the Victorian government has, has come up with, like, $66 million for the arts sector, and a, a big chunk of that is sort of focused at music venues, making sure that they're okay and and thinking about musicians, other people working in the music industry, which is smart because the music industry is a big contributor to the Victorian economy and it's a huge contributor to the Australian economy, but unfortunately we haven't seen the federal government either move very quickly um, or provide a lot of support. So they've only put forward $250 million for the entire arts sector and a lot of that money was focused more on the large arts organizations, uh, rather than looking at how you support, say, musicians or small venues. Um, and the problem with that is if you lose the small venues, you lose the stepping stones that people need in order to develop their careers and to make it into the larger venues and to make it into the spaces that those <clears throat> large organizations are part of. So we haven't seen as much as need in support from the government, either at the federal or state level, although the states have been better than the federal government. Um, obviously, this is a very hard time for everybody, so you, you're not expecting billions and billions of dollars to be put there, but um, obviously there is also a point to be made there about where money is being spent, say, on the military side of things, or we've just recently seen that $10 million go to uh, the Rupert Murdoch uh, media that would have gone a long way in helping to support people in the arts sector in Australia. So in terms of then going beyond that, so the, the basic level of support hasn't been tremendous. Going beyond that to, to get people thinking about how you build the industry back better uh, is a whole another set of issues. Um, which hasn't been being talked about really at, at the government level at all, very much. Uh, so it's fantastic that the Office for Women here in Victoria have put forward some money for us to do a study where we can try and find out which groups of people are being most affected and to get some ideas from people in the industry about how we move forward and do better in some of these questions as things start
1: to open up again.
3: And could you tell us a little bit more, more about that study? So this is a study that's going until the 20, 20th of August. Um, what, 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 what is it entailing and who, who do you need to contact you?
4: Uh, we are looking for anybody who has made any money at all from music-related activities in the last 12 months or into 12 months in the lead-up to the lockdown, um, and that uh, includes people who are running uh, businesses related to music, so managers, uh, people who are artists themselves, people who are running venues, people who have been on road crews, so anybody who's made money related to music. Um, and we are just asking a series of questions about what it has meant to have the lockdown happen, so uh, what proportion of money have you lost, uh, what have you been doing to try and keep music-related activities happening, have you been being paid for those or not? Um, and we're also asking people a series of questions about what do you think needs to happen to get things. Up and running again, and how can we do it better than we might have been doing some things before? So really giving people an opportunity to have their say in in that area.
3: Uh, and we'll post the details for that uh, for that survey on our uh, website. Uh, would you like to give out the website now?
4: Yeah, fantastic. Thank you. Yes. So people can find it if they go to vmdo. So V for Victor, M for Mary, D for Dog, O for Organisation. dot <laughs> um, com. dot au. So vmdo. dot au, and you will find a big yellow button sitting on the front page there that says uh, Music Industry COVID Related Study. Um, or if you just Google vmdo, you will find that website will come up as the first hit there as well.
3: That was Dr. Catherine Strong from RMIT University telling us about how music has been impacted by COVID-19 and what the road to recovery looks like. And here's one of my favourite musicians at the moment, Kate, singing OG Love Push. You yeah, had the to
5: leave your mental cigarettes on the kitchen floor. How much I hate you smoking and then your asthma always acting up awful. You're never really on my mind i just think of you from time to time Can finally say I'm sleeping well at night Don't need weed singing me a lullaby I feel like I'm your mama Cause it's so damn hard just to please you But now that's not my problem I got no more OT Love kush for you, boo I feel like I'm your mama Cause it's so damn hard just to please you But now it's not my problem I got no more OG love for you I wanna see you do nothing but the best But in all the cool that I think it would be best never I leave you on scene, Block you off everything Stop imagining that ring I stop this as drinking Hoping that I see you on the weekend Going on my girl's phone to check your time Stalking all them bitches that like to profile your profile nothing anymore I, I feel like I'm your mama Cause it's so damn hard just to please you But now that's not my problem I got no more OG not push for you boo I feel like I'm your mama
1: 3TR
6: Community Radio, 855
3: AM. Hey all you mob, it's Dr Mark Winnitong here. Coronavirus has certainly changed the way we live, work and connect. These changes can be hard for some of us and can make us feel no good in our head or spirit, like sad or worried all the time. Some of us might already be dealing with other things like sickness, trauma, and this can make it really hard for us to feel good about anything at the moment. If you're feeling like this, remember, it's okay to ask for help. Have a yarn to someone you trust like your family or an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health worker. You can also call Beyond Blue, Lifeline or the Kids Helpline to talk to someone or look at some helpful information at headtohealth.gov.au on the internet.
1: A 3CR supporter.
7: to care about our feelings They make us run around
6: the system from the public opinion afro orchestra whatever angle you look at it the australian media and in particular the journalism industry doesn't reflect the diverse reality of our population this isn't a new issue and it's been raised time and time again but it seems to be receiving increased attention recently following the black lives matter protests with many industries going through somewhat of a reckoning journalism included so this week i spoke with Janak rogers a journalist working in radio and in TV, and associate professor in journalism at RMIT, Janak recently wrote an article for The Conversation entitled "Australia's media has been too white for too long. This is how to bring more diversity to newsrooms." So I think this is a really important time or opportunity to enact change. I wrote an article detailing how we might do that. I'm really keen to hear about that. But first, fix the problem. I think you really need to understand the cause. I want to start by asking you about this. Colonization might be the short answer, and I'm sure the long answer wouldn't fit into our 15 minute segment. Um, but can you start by briefly outlining some of the structural inequalities that have led to the diversity problem in journalism and aren't necessarily visible to the public?
8: Yeah, uh, thanks for the question. I think you're absolutely right. Like, the, the heart of it is, you know, we're a colonized country, and we've brought with that a, a bunch of problems. But we've always really looked to England and a particular version of, of England to try and model our own culture and society on that. You know, we did open the, the doors eventually in Australia and we've made massive strides. And I think on, on many counts, we're a very successful multicultural country. And I think there's a lot to be proud of in that. But in many, many other ways, we're also not. And we've still got our homework to do. Part of that homework, I think, is making sure that the people who uh, tell stories about our country and who Do the journalism in our country reflect the country we live in? And I think that's, you know, one of the many areas where we do have a lag in terms of who has benefited, I guess, from the the systems that are in place and who is very well represented in Australian stories. And I think you can draw a line really all the way back to, to Australia's idea of itself as a white country, a country that supports, you know, types of people at the expense of others. And like you say, I think the Black Lives Matter movement has really focused our attentions on what are the structural inequities across the board. I happen to work in in the media and as a journalist, so I draw attention to that. And there are structural inequities that are in the media and in journalism that I think many people want to see corrected. And the benefits are not just about sort of devolving power and giving it away to, to people who haven't otherwise had it, But it's also in the interests of organisations that that the people who work there and the stories they tell represent the country. It makes good business sense. It makes good corporate sense. It makes good moral sense as well. So that's part of the argument I'm trying to put forward. And
6: a few weeks ago on Monday Brekkie, we listened to a speech from Eric Jensen, founding editor of the Saturday Paper. And speaking last year, he described journalism as being at its second crossroads, not one of means but of privilege. In describing the entrenched nature of the problem, he spoke about his early days training as a journalist where he was encouraged to be indifferent to criticism, an attack that is sometimes necessary, other times harmful, and a code of ethics that seemed to avoid discussing diversity. From your experience as a journalist, do you think there is a defensive nature in journalism that can make it resistant to criticism and therefore
8: change? Yeah, I mean, I think most sort of structures where there is forms of privilege is reactive on some level. And I think journalism and the media is, you know, is not immune to that at all. So absolutely, I think, you know, it does make people uncomfortable. And I think that discomfort is something that usually leads to inaction. It usually leads to, to people sidestepping the issue or burying it, or in some ways deflecting it into, into something. But, you know, to actually look at the problems head on and to think about diversity as a shared problem and as a shared challenge I think is really where the conversation needs to move for a long time. And I think this is really familiar in the, in the kind of conversation and the vernacular of people of color who talk about uh, structural inequity and structural privilege. They end up doing a lot of the work to try and fix it. And that becomes this double burden of being excluded from systems of power, but then expected to change them, expected to do a lot of the hard work to change them. And I think that's one thing where there's real opportunity for people across the board not to see this as an issue of marginal people by marginal people that needs to be taken care of by them raising awareness and talking about it and creating networks uh, and forcing open the doors. I think it should really be seen as a, a shared problem that people who are well represented in the industry actually take an active role in trying to change. And at that moment, there's much less reason to feel defensive about it because you're not being called out for what you're not doing. You're actually able to to lean in and do that work. I think that's where a lot of the, the solutions lie with this.
6: And there has been a lot of debate recently about call-out culture or cancel culture. Um, There
8: was a much-discussed
6: open letter published in Harper magazine in America, which described a growing movement putting free speech and open debate at risk. And a letter of a somewhat similar vein published in the Sydney Morning Herald in response to criticism of a short film in Australia, Mukbang, that was accused of appropriating Korean culture. Now, to me, the Harper's letter was vague at best, and I haven't seen the film, so I'm not so interested in discussing the nuances of any particular case. But we're often presented with what I believe is a false choice between free speech and accountability. Do you have any insight for how to balance the need for open debate while still holding people or organisations accountable for harmful views?
8: Yeah, I mean, you're right that Harper's letter was an interesting collection of people making an argument that got a lot of traction, partly because they do have a very high profile. I think a lot of manoeuvres in political debate are now being passed off as under this kind of umbrella term of cancel culture and censorship, when the reality is that most people are not actually being censored and cancelling is usually at best a slap on the wrist temporarily. Many people who have been cancelled seem to, to reemerge and they're suddenly uncancelled. So I don't think the problem is as grave as that letter seemed to suggest it was. You know, I do think there's a conversation to be had amongst liberals about how they frame intellectual debate and what are the tools that we use to try and punish slash tarnish people whose views we don't agree with. From what I see, you know, most of the people who have a point of view and are well represented through whatever forms of privilege, they do get to make that point of view one way or another, even if it's to argue saying that they're being cancelled. The very fact that you have all those people getting such prominence, it kind of buries the arguments that that they're being cancelled at all because they really are being listened to and still being listened to disproportionately. So I don't worry about them too much. I definitely am much more concerned that people's voices who we haven't heard from and we don't hear from enough get drowned out amongst that. Uh, They get drowned out for structural reasons that go well beyond this relative sort of blip of of thinking about cancel culture. When in fact what's been happening structurally in terms of political power is much more deeply rooted than who gets briefly deplatformed.
6: In this, um, the open letter published in the Sydney Morning Herald stated that activists criticizing the film have not understood the history of struggle against racism in Australia which has established structures that have already enabled some of the critics to assume their current positions within the mainstream Australian media and provides ongoing opportunity for others, and that the activists are importing many of their ideas from elsewhere. And a little earlier in the year, the Channel 9 reporter covering the Black Lives Matter rally in the US asked a protester to explain the situation to Australian audiences, as we might not understand because we don't have a history of police violence. Now, the diversity problem isn't unique to Australian journalism, and as I said, we're seeing similar reckonings around the world. But do you think there is a unique quality in Australia where we see ourselves as removed from the rest of the world, which makes us less likely to take on criticism or confront problems from our past?
8: Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a very good question. It's also a very big question. I mean, I think we, um, I think you're, you're right, you know, we do see Uh, We are effectively a very big island and uh, we're a very particular type of island with a small population and kind of inhospitable uh, land at the centre, this huge colonial baggage to to deal with. Um, And we've been late to a number of conversations. I mean, I think uh, Australia's lot has always been a little bit to to work out who we are in the wake of colonial countries, initially the, the UK um and now to a degree uh, the us but i think you know we we also greatly benefit from the fact that the world is interconnected and um that we can actually mature a little bit more you know rapidly because the the black lives matter movement you know in, in, as one recent example has clearly catalyzed the conversation here in australia and that's nothing if not a, a benefit for us we are at the end of the day uh, a very stable privileged country. to not acknowledge that and not acknowledge that that comes with a special responsibility to act upon the things we can act. I think that's uh, what the, the these debates that are you know happening in a different tone overseas, but uh, they do present a real opportunity for us uh, to, to act upon them um, and yeah and a real challenge for us to act upon them.
6: And several Aboriginal writers highlighted issues within newsrooms and workplaces in Australia. Journalist and Murawari man Alan Clark recently wrote, For Aboriginal journalists like me, when we begin our careers, we're expected to take a saw and hack off parts of our soul and our lived experience until they fall away to just get a bloodied foot in the door. And screenwriter and DARO woman Cody Bedford called out her former employer, SBS, for a culture of racism which took a huge toll. So it's not just a matter of hiring more culturally and linguistically diverse staff, though that
8: would certainly help,
6: how can we make journalism more accessible and more appealing to culturally and linguistically diverse people in Australia?
8: Yeah, I I mean, I think you're absolutely right. And I obviously can't speak to the lived experience of those two particular journalists, but I do think, yeah, many people of colour who make it into journalism, like you say, getting or make it into the media, getting in there uh, doesn't resolve the issue. That's not the only kind of outcome that I think people who care about diversity and inclusion in the media uh, should be focused on. So once you're in those spaces as well, like you say, you know, it's about who gets leadership roles, it's who gets editorial, who gets to actually shape and craft stories, and who gets to to do them without having to also effectively be a, a touchstone and a reference point for the entire culture from which they happen to come from, which I think is one thing a lot of people who are people of colour who end up in these organisations, they become the go-to person. I happen to be uh, half Indian, and I've definitely had plenty of occasions where I'm the go-to for for any sort of questions related to to brown people slash Asia slash you know cultural difference in general. And I think that's, uh, yeah, it's a bit unfair that that um, becomes effectively a double workload again on people of color uh, once they're in those organizations. So, yeah, I think, you know, definitely organizations thinking really clearly about where people get put, what sort of roles they get given, uh, what sort of creative and editorial control is put in there, to think actively about tokenism and what that looks and feels like to create, you know, I think real, Uh, networks and pathways that make sure that people who are from diverse backgrounds really thrive in organizations, absolutely thrive. They don't just get there, get worn out and go, actually, this is not for me because it's hard enough work getting people into the media. You know, it's, it's a bit of a truism that, you know, media and journalism are having um, a huge transition at the moment anyway. So so these jobs are hard to get. And once you've got them, you would really do want to keep them and nurture the people who are in there once they've got it. So I think uh, organisations that take that and who are really actively mindful to that challenge, it's not something that's going to happen on its own. It's going to happen from concerted effort. And is anyone getting it right
6: or any organisations who are successfully tackling the issue?
8: I mean, I... I'd hesitate to give a, you know anyone an, an absolute gold star and go yes they should just go and kick <laughs> up for the afternoon because I think you know there's always more we can do and you know We're in heading article, in the right direction maybe <laughs> yes yeah absolutely I mean interesting in that article I found myself making points about the ABC and the and the direction it's taken um, but partly what allows me to make that those points is because the ABC does actually take it seriously and they produce um, substantial reports. That show the targets they're setting on diversity and inclusion. They give statistics and, and an insight into how the organisation is doing year on year in making those targets. So it actually makes it quite easy to, to to show them up when they're not doing it. And turns out they haven't made all their targets, and not everything's you know um, going rosy. But you know, for what it's worth, I, I think they really are uh, trying to take it seriously and. And, and make an effort and that's you know if that's where the gold star is at the moment that's where, where it is when it comes to commercial networks as well i mean they just ignore the question in general um, that's not to say that they don't have um, you know people from diverse backgrounds who are great talent within the organizations and you know no, nothing's monolithic uh, but i don't think there's a, um, a shared vocabulary amongst all the media organizations, that this is something that everybody should be walk, working on all the time, uh, and not just once a year in a couple of meetings. So I think if we can get to that place, we'll already be you know, doing a lot better. And I think you know it's been interesting the conversations around uh, SBS recently, which you know is a flag bearer and rightfully so for um for you know for diversity and inclusion in in our country. But has revealed so many issues. You know, there's letters signed by a whole bunch of staff calling out racism and toxicity in the industry. We've seen Leland Chin as well, right, recently talking about the very same thing, racism and toxicity. We've had the former managing general come up and. And justify the fact that the entire senior management team, um, is, is all people from Caucasian backgrounds. And I think diversity does need to, to, to mean, you know, people of, of color and, and other forms of marginality as well, um, you know, actively in leadership positions, able to, to take decisions that affect everyone. And um, referring to journalism's other crossroads,
6: industry is also experiencing major financial problems, only compounded by the COVID-19 pandemic. How do you think this is going to affect diversity? As you said, diversity is also in companies' interests. So do you think that given the industry is being forced to rapidly adapt and change, that this could also present an opportunity for change on both fronts?
8: Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, one of the um, articles I cited in the article I wrote was a report from PricewaterhouseCoopers, uh, which dates from 2016, if I remember correctly, uh, which very forcefully makes the case that um, having a diverse uh, and inclusive organization is in your economic interests and not having those things is slowing growth in the media industry. Um, So, you know, um, for anybody who's uncomfortable with, you know, the moral Um, uh, elements of this argument uh, then take the economic ones you know they're sitting there waiting for you as well Um, you know there's as you say there's no doubt that the media is uh, having a a hell of a transition at the moment and that's led to decreased opportunities in many domains you know interesting I mean I think it's led to increased opportunities in others um, and I think there's a real you know part of the shift we're seeing towards um, you know uh, just greater use of technology in newsrooms does favor younger people. A lot of the jobs we're losing are senior jobs uh, that are being swapped out by people who have multimedia and digital skills. Um, And I think there's, uh, that's a real opportunity for younger people and particularly younger people of diverse backgrounds to kick the door open, to get in there, to use those skills to tell stories Um, because you know, the big irony of this whole thing is that, you know, we're consuming more content than ever before um, uh, uh, but there's not as much money to be made from it. Um, You know, there are still jobs, there are still highly viable organisations, things like the ABC and SBS will be around for a very, very long time. Um, there's plenty of ways to cut your teeth in this country. And um, uh, yeah, I don't I don't subscribe to the fact that it's all doom and gloom here. I think we've got a lot to be very optimistic about, and um, we remain a very privileged country with a bunch of opportunities. It's just about making sure those opportunities are, um, are, are actually equitable. And I think that's a conversation that, yeah, we're really, that I'm genuinely excited to see happening at the moment.
6: And finally, do you have any advice for consumers of the news other than listening to their favourite radical radio station? How can individuals become more discerning readers, listeners or watchers of the
8: news? I mean, that's another very big and, um, you know, interesting question. But yes, definitely uh, listen to your favourite uh, community radio station. I think that's a very good place to start. Um, but beyond that, you know, I uh, uh, and maybe this is the last time I'll double back on that point, but I, I really do think there's a shared responsibility here to to advance these arguments and to think critically about about uh, the kind of stories we tell and who tells those stories. And from what I see, is the bulk of that work is is still done by people of color, may, you know who, who become advocates um, for this issue. What what I think is a really healthy step for people to become better and more literate news readers um, is of course, basic things, read widely, read, you know, read people whose whose opinions you disagree with all that sort of stuff. Don't just get your from your, your news from social media. Don't just get it from one place. You know, these are kind of basics about having a a healthy media environment and kind of a media ecology around you. Um, But beyond that as well, like I think, you know, go out of your way to absorb points of view, That you're not exposed to often and become literate in the kind of things they're arguing for you can work out later whether you yourself want to argue for them Um, but i but i think what the default at the moment and i think this is true for you know people working you know in in, you know as queer advocates as feminists as uh, you know for trans advocacy for you know for racism all these sort of things that the bulk of the work disproportionately falls on the shoulders uh, of the people who are already marginalised. So um, I think if you, you can pick up a book, if you can listen to a podcast, if you can do anything that makes you more literate in in other people's experience, you're well on your way.
6: That was Janak Rogers discussing the diversity problem in Australian media and what we can do about it. Next up, Black Jesus Experience with Mother Earth. <music>
5: Ge get you.
2: Legal Legal service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136
3: 501 weekdays between 9am and 5pm that's 0434 136 501 or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au.
2: Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. We're Monday Breakfast, you're listening to 3CR and here's a track by Nat Vaser, and it's called Higher Places.
9: From sky, rain beginning of life, like our kinship ties. In Mother Earth's eyes, river banks flow wide, fingerlings swim wild, making Mother Moon smile. Hasn't rained in a while. Walla is blood, Walla gives flood, Walla is life got to get law right, limitless undercurrents, pushing, pulling, pumping, gliding, sliding, mulling, trickles from the nipples of sacred springs, it's an animal thing, made to give us wind. the norm. Bees will cease to swarm and our oceans far too warm. That after the rain the river flows after the rain the river flows after the rain the river flows
0: while the majority of Melbourneans are experiencing a lockdown in one way our guest today shares his personal experience of a different type of lockdown. Kurdish artist Farhad Bendesh is a guitar maker, musician and self-taught painter. He's also an asylum seeker and has been living in Australian offshore and onshore detention centres for seven years. I arranged to talk to Farhad about his current creative works. He's just released a new song, and is also participating in an audio project called Where Are You Now? These expressions of his detainee experience, emotionally charged and politically pointed, are as much tools for his survival as they are demonstrations of resilience. Fahad mentions a few different places of detention in the course of the interview. To help you follow, I'm going to give a very brief overview of his trajectory. On 23rd of July 2013, Fahad travelled to Christmas Island by boat, seeking asylum. Just four days before, the then Prime Minister, Kevin Rudd, made this announcement.
6: From this point forward, asylum seekers who arrive in Australia by boat will be sent to Papua New Guinea for processing and resettlement. People who come by boat now have no prospect of being resettled in Australia. The rules have changed.
0: Farhad was sent to Manus Island, Papua New Guinea, where he was held for six years at an Australian-run offshore detention facility. After developing acute shoulder pain and mental health issues, he was flown to Melbourne under the Medivac program and transferred to the Mantra Hotel in Preston. He was there for nine months before being abruptly transferred to the Melbourne Immigrant Transfer Accommodation in Broadmeadows in April. Farhad claims he was forcibly removed. In this segment, you'll hear Farhad talk firstly about the song he's released, secondly about his contribution to the Where Are You Today audio project, and also about his experience staying at the Mancha Hotel during the COVID-19 pandemic. So that I don't break the interview up, I'm going to give a bit of context to the Where Are You Now project so it makes sense when we come to it. Listeners may already be familiar with this work through the How Are You Today project, created in 2018. That project was an acoustic compilation sharing the daily lives of a group of men living in detention on Manus Island. Now, two years on, these men are in many different places. Some have their freedom, while others are still detained. Six, including Farhad, are creating fresh recordings from their current places of indefinite internment. Every day for the month of August, these 10-minute recordings will be released through a text message link, and I'll be posting details of how you can sign up to listen at the end of the segment. Stories like this are important to hear because they represent the lived experience of members of our community, voices that are not often heard and rarely appear in mainstream news coverage. Now we're going to talk about the song Cruel Policy. It was co-written with Janelle Quincy and released on the 23rd of July 2020 to signify the 7th anniversary of his arrival by boat to Christmas Island and Kevin Rudd's policy announcement. Here's Farhad.
10: It's a political song and it's... Uh... Seven years anniversary of innocent uh, asylum seekers and refugees, um, and twenty third of July, it's my it's the day I arrived to Christmas Island and I asked for help and safety land to to have room to breathe. And it's not just me, hundreds of innocent refugees. We've been through with mentally and physically harsh condition in uh, remote island Manus Island and Nauru, and it could be for other refugees as well who are still in detention centers in onshore. And I had to write this song to make maybe something change and break something good things for those people who are still looking for freedom.
0: So what was the experience of making that song?
10: It's a rock song full of emotional and sadness, uh, pictures of uh, refugees and also our supporters, Australian people who fight for our freedom. Everything I do, it's... uh, I'm helping with my friends, musician friends, and I create the track, this uh, example of the song, and I send it to my musicians. And everything I do, by it's by my phone. I record my uh, guitar or my voice and send it to them, and then we build the track.
0: That must be exciting to be in that collaboration with a group of people with a creative purpose.
10: It's really beautiful. You know, I am the one inside the cage and create things and I share it with those people are in community. And this is really a good connection between me and musician outside. It's really meaningful and it's really it's like a treasure for me I think the connection is the phone the phone helped me and helps me to uh, to share my creation my music my art to um, to people who are in community and for this song many other people helped me with this many refugees and some videos, shots, and we finished it. And I think it has a, it, it has a good message to Australian people to listen this song and they, they can see how much this government is cruel to us after seven years and they have no any plan for releasing us.
0: I'm sorry our government's treated you like that.
1: Yeah,
10: thank you.
0: Are you fearful about the bill where mobile phones might be confiscated?
10: Uh, I think everyone is uh, worried and they don't want to lose this connection. This is a, uh, I think this is a, like a heart for us. If they take this from us, our heart, gonna be damaged, and how can we communicate with our families? We have many people here, they have children, they have wife, they have husband, and they have family, they want to connect, uh, communicate with this, uh, their families, and they want to ask for their freedom. If they take my phone away, I think I'm gonna die. And how can I promote my music, my art? And how can I share them with people? It's really, really hard. And it remind me when I was on Manus Island, we have no, that right to have uh, simple things, these device eyes like a phone. And when the officers, local officers, smugglers to bring some phone for us, we got some hope to connect our families and friends, and then when they search and they take took the phones away from us it's, it's really really hard. Mm. I think everyone have that right to have these things, and this is like a personal thing. they shouldn't take taken these things from us
0: It's like a lifeline
10: yeah, it's like food.
0: I was reading about your background as an artist and the range of creative areas that you have delved into over many years. Guitar making, jewellery, calligraphy, painting, drawing, music, poetry and singing. Yeah. How do yeah, you I... describe yourself? What's your way of describing your creative identity when people ask you, what sort of artist are you?
10: I think I love Art and art included the ones you said and other, many other things. I really like to build guitars and you know, it's really hard. When I on Manus Island, I ask and I requested to have uh, some simple tools to make a guitar. And if there's opportunity, I can teach those people who really interested to learn and unfortunately they reject my request and I missed it more than seven years now it's it's awful also I really like to write poetry I really like to create um, many things like paints drawing I wish I have my art supplies again they took a, they took my supplies away from me for four months now. And I am still asking why I cannot access to my art supplies. And it is not something new, they drive me mad. Sometimes they give, give it to me, sometimes they take it from me. An artist should have everything they need. And any time they want to create, they should have it. And I shouldn't have a limited times or limited material for them. Any time I can create it, it's something just come to you, and you just want to release your expression. Mm-hmm. And that time you need it. Uh, for example, I right now I want to uh, create something, and ABF says tomorrow. 2 p.m. we have a art class. You can go there and paint. I cannot go 2 p.m. tomorrow. I have no feeling. How can I express my... I, I cannot do that. I need everything I need be with me anytime I want. And if you ask any artists, they say these things.
0: Did they give you a reason when they took them away?
10: As I, I am still asking why you took away from me. There is no answer. Altogether, um, I have many exhibitions in Melbourne, and unfortunately, I was not allowed to go to my exhibition, even for one minute. I did request to ABF. Can I go with your guards to there in my exhibition for one minute, two minutes, with the people I want to be with my artwork in my exhibition and explain about my art world and tell the story behind my art. They are rejected. Who can bear this? Any artist in the world can accept this thing.
0: You're listening to 3CR. I'm speaking with Kurdish artist and asylum seeker, Farhad Bandesh, who is entering his eighth year of detention by the Australian government. Fahad has just spoken about the political significance of his new song, Cruel Policy, released last week. Now we're going to hear about another project, Where Are You Now?, a collaboration between six men who were detained on Manus Island and now live in various places. Some, like Farhad, are in detention here in Melbourne.
10: Michael and John asked me to participate on this project when they told me, about the project, uh, I was a little surprised and it was something new and I thought this is a good experience to do that project. We could record our voice, anything like 10 minutes and send it to them and it was part of our life on Manus Island. It could be anything. Just sounds like bird sound, or wind, or walking, and it was really great. And I think what we did was art, and recording our voice, our sounds, it's art, and it was really wonderful and unique for me. That was the first ever I had in my life something is unique for me you just grab your phone or recorder we used to have our recorder on minus island to record uh, our uh, files there but now we have no recorder we should try with phone and it's a a little bit different and this is the nice part we are using the phone the phone is so Important for us how much we can create with this phone. And I just want to say, mm, when I want to compare it, uh, I am here in Melbourne and when I was on Manus Island, uh, I think it's different and I could walk there on Manus Island, but I wasn't safe. I could go the beach with our dog and I could share many things there with local people there. And I have some uh, local friends there who are on some of my files. But here it's, uh, it's really different. You are in just cage. And
1: I think it's more sad. This art gonna be more sad.
10: After seven years, you were gonna create something be, uh, between bars and fences and people are gonna listen to your record. And I think every single of the record gonna be similar because there is nothing to do here. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because we have many refugees in a different uh, detention. Some, uh, in Pormosvi, Papua New Guinea. And that's the good part as well. And I'm sure everyone has a different uh, records uh, for this project. That's the great things we are sharing our lives in detention center with people, and people are gonna listen to our stories. So when we were on Manus Island and we shared our stories, we were thousand and thousand kilometers far from Australian people. And we still have some people are in that place right now, and they are in this project. And I am one of them who are very close to the community, and I cannot reach the people. But I can send my story by recording, and this project will help, and we can buy this message, this recording share our cares, share our love. And I think this project makes the people closer and be united. We can easily share our stories. And doesn't matter how much we are far from each other. And as I said, it's art. And this art, there there is, is no border.
0: And if you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with Kurdish artist and asylum seeker Farhad Bandesh, who is currently detained at the Melbourne Immigrant Transfer Accommodation in Broadmeadows. He's been talking about the Where Are You Now audio project and his newly released song Cruel Policy. I now ask Farhad about his experience appearing on ABC's Q&A program in April at the time he was being detained at the Mantra Hotel in Preston and he asked the panel what is the Australian government going to do to protect us from the COVID-19 virus and why can't we be released into the community for our safety how did it feel uh, speaking to a national audience when you had the opportunity to ask that question
10: yeah i think everyone has that right to protect themselves i think this is a good time to answer this question. Why I am in detention center? Why the sh- the refugees are in detention center now? If we are Sikh refugee, why we should be in detention centers and they locked up us for no reason? When look at the Mantra Hotel, the guys, more than 65 refugees there and how the staff can prak- practice the social distancing when the Kiridou, it's less than 1.5. It's not possible. When I ask the government, OHMS cannot practice the social distancing in this place. The place is not enough for 65 refugees and more than 30 staff in the Uridang. They are changing sixty stuff changing. It's like one hundred imagine in one floor in hotel. Is it possible to practice social distancing? Everyone has a right. Why we are denying for seven years and we start eight years now. How long they want to take this cruel policy? When they want to close these detention centres for refugees who are asking for freedom and safety maybe the coronavirus will kill us and then they release others. That's I was worried and asked the government if they have a plan for releasing these refugees from this danger.
0: Was there any positive outcomes from speaking on Q&A?
10: I think just the message I sent, more people realize, more education with that. Many people searched for us and we got many supporters which is wonderful, but nothing changed from this government. They still continue this cruelty, and we are still asking.
0: How did you feel during the Q&A? I know it was a few months ago now. There were several people on the panel. One of them was a Dr. Simon Longstaff. He's the executive director of the Ethics Centre, and he spoke about two fundamental things. One was the value of a human life. And the other was the duty of a country to provide safety to anyone seeking asylum. How did you feel when you heard him speak those fundamental principles?
10: I think when someone thinks about these things, we got some hope and we are not forgotten.
0: Where are you staying now?
10: I am in Maita now for four months now.
0: And how many are you sharing with now?
10: I am sharing a small room with someone.
0: Do you have adequate supplies of soap and hand sanitizer? Uh,
10: we have just soap here, yeah. no sanitizer in my room. In that area, it's a kitchen, a TV room, and everyone could gather in there, including officers. They play pool. In just one place. Imagine just one place, one area. It's everything there and it's crowded. And you cannot practice social distancing at all in detention centers.
0: Have you been issued with masks?
10: Uh, We are not wearing masks because we are detainees. Yes, we are detainees and we don't need to wear anything because we are just inside the detention centers. And their stuff have to wear mask and gloves. Some of them I can see still they don't use mask and none of them use more, uh, gloves. When I see them, I think maybe they have, they affected already and it's uh, normal to panic.
0: Is there anything else you want to say?
10: I just want to appreciate those people who are fighting for our freedom. Uh, We love them so much. And thank you so much for this interview. Thank you.
0: There are a lot of people that feel for you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was Kurdish artist Farhad Bendesh speaking with me from the Melbourne Immigrant Transfer Accommodation in Broadmeadows, where he is currently detained by the Australian government. The Department of Home Affairs was contacted to respond to various aspects of this interview, but had not replied by the time we went to air. We'll keep you posted on their response. In the meantime, you may be interested to know Article 19.2 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights grants everyone the right to freedom of expression. And this right includes the freedom to seek and impart information and ideas of all kinds, including in the form of art or through any other media of choice. And wanting to hear more about Farhad and his music? Head to Farhad's YouTube channel at Farhad Bandesh, F-A-R-H-A-D-B-A-N-D-E-S-H. And to tune in to Where Are You Now and hear the daily recordings from Farhad, and his colleagues, simply send the word hello by text message to the following number, plus 61488845951. That's plus 61488845951. Where Are You Now is presented by sound curator Liquid Architecture and assisted by the team from Behind the Wire. Recordings will be released from this Saturday and subscription is free. And a final side note, if you're wondering why the recordings are 10 minutes long, according to the producers, 10 minutes is an uncomfortable duration for most listeners and presents an opportunity to interrogate our sense of restlessness, impatience and attention. When we turn away from our boredom, what else are we avoiding? Now here's Cruel Policy by Fahad Bendesh.
2: so much for tuning in to today's show it's been great hearing from ella paddy and claudia this morning and do stay tuned for women on the line and make sure you tune in to all of the 3cr breakfast shows this week and we'll see you again soon